want us to take our Bibles this morning and return to our study of Romans chapter 2. We have already spent several weeks studying this portion of Scripture, and I want to finish it up this morning. So let me just begin by reading for us to reacquaint us with this text, beginning in verse 17 and reading to the end of this chapter. Paul says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the circumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though you have the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Some years ago, the well-known allegorical writer C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled The Great Divorce. In that book, he portrays a, a conversation that takes place between two individuals. And it's similar, really, to the interchange that the Apostle Paul, or at least the mindset within the interchange that the Apostle Paul is portraying in the verses that we are studying this morning. The conversation in that book, The Great Divorce, is between a man who resides in heaven, that's his place for eternity, and he is currently visiting an old friend who happens to be a resident in hell. And yet, the man in hell is convinced that he's not there, that he's not in hell. The conversation goes like this. The visitor from heaven says, Is it possible you don't know where you've been all along? The other guy answers, Now that you mention it, I don't think we ever do give it a name. What do you call it? The man visiting from heaven said this, Well, we call it hell. The man in hell said, Now, there's no need to be profane. There's no need to 
say those kinds of things, my dear boy. It may not be, I may not be very orthodox in your sense of the word, but I do feel that these matters ought to be discussed simply and seriously and reverently. Which his friend from heaven said, discuss it reverently? I meant what I said. You've been in hell. The man in hell says, go on. No doubt you'll tell me why. In your view, I was sent there. Another man says, because you are an apostate. That's why you were sent there. Apostate is just someone who turns their back on God, who once says they believe in God and then turns their back on God. Because you're an apostate. To which the man in hell says, do you really think that people are so penalized for their honest opinions, even assuming for the sake of argument that those opinions are mistaken? In other words, do you think that that God's going to judge people for being honest about what they think? Really a sad story because... In the allegorical story that C.S. Lewis tells, the man who is actually in hell doesn't think he is. He has convinced himself, for whatever reason, in his mind that he is, in fact, still okay with whatever God he has made. And it's based upon a false sense of spiritual security. And although C.S. Lewis always knew that those in hell actually knew that they were there, in his real-world thinking about Christians and non-Christians and those who were in hell and those who weren't in hell, C.S. Lewis knew that those who were in hell knew that they were in hell. The story, though, pictures how deceptive and how destructive trusting in spiritual pride in the human heart can be. It's clear in Scripture from the words of Jesus Christ that there is coming a day when great numbers of people who are convinced in their hearts that they are saved will in fact stand before a holy God to be judged as unsaved. There is coming that day. We know it well, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 Verse 21 and following, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those are hard words for any person to hear. Those are hard words as a reality when we open the Scriptures and we read them, and they're hard to accept, especially especially when we understand that the people saying those words to Jesus are earnest and sincere religious people who will be lost eternally. Why? Because of the deception of spiritual pride. This is exactly what the Bible tells us. There are those who believe 
that the Bible is, in fact, the inerrant word of God. And we would go, here, here, we believe the Bible is the exact, in fact, inerrant word of God. And yet there are those who believe that in one day they will be lost forever. Why? Because they have been deceived by their own heart into a false sense of spiritual security. And that false sense of spiritual security has blinded them to the real matters of saving faith. They are believing they're going to heaven when in actuality they're like the man that C.S. Lewis had in his allegorical story. They're actually going to hell. And this is what Paul is dealing with here in these verses before us this morning. The deadliness of spiritual deception. The deadliness of spiritual deception. False spiritual confidence has everlasting hellish consequences. And Paul is opening the eyes of the saints in Rome concerning these dangers. And we must ourselves be reminded of these dangers as well. The deception of spiritual pride. The deception at which spiritual pride can take you and convince you that you're saved when in fact you are not saved at all. We began to hear of these things last Lord's Day. We began to list some of these dangers. And the first danger that we listed was this. The spiritual danger of resting on spiritual privilege as your hope. The spiritual danger or the danger of resting upon spiritual privilege as your hope. Verses 17 to 24 give us that, and we covered them last Lord's Day. The deception of spiritual privilege was the great danger for the Jew of Paul's day. Every Jew understood that when it came to the truth of God, they, as a people, were a privileged people beyond all other nations. That's why Paul says, but if you bear the name Jew, if you are a Jew and you hold to these kinds of things as your spiritual privilege, and you think that your spiritual privilege is something you can rest on, you are in grave danger. It is this temptation and danger that is upon them. And it is a temptation and a danger, not just for the Jew, but for everybody who seems to have a religious background. Why? Because for the Jew, for anybody who is religious or even the moralistic person, having right doctrine does not mean that a person is secure before the Lord. The deception of our heart is for us to rest in that. The deception for the human heart and for the heart who is involved in religious activities is to say, because I'm involved in these things, I can rest upon that and I am secure with God because I have spiritual privilege. Notice how the Apostle Paul lays this argument out. He lists six privileges that the Jews had. Specifically, 
only to them at that time. He starts out with the one I've already mentioned. If you call yourself Jew, they were called Jews. They were called Jews. That was a privilege among the nations. No one else was called Jews. No one else was known to be God's people. It meant that they were the chosen people of the Jehovah God. It became the very identity marker of privilege among them. So that was their first privilege. The second, though, was that they had the law. Notice, you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law. They had the law. That is, they had the very words of God. They they had the the books of Moses. No other nation had God's words in writing. Because the Jews had it, they became convinced that the possession of it, the, the very ownership of the law of God was enough to secure their place before God, that they were in fact going to be saved and unjudged no matter what took place. So they were Jews. They had the law. And third, they bragged about God. Verse 17 tells us that. They boast in God. They didn't brag because they knew God. They bragged because they would say God chose them. They believed that they were God's favorites, and so they bragged about that to others. Paul says, fourthly, that they boasted that they knew God's will. You see that in verse 18? Bear the name Jew, you reply upon the law, you boast in God and know His will. Because they had God's written word, they would say that they knew what God wanted. And it was true. They did know what God wanted, but in fact they did not do it as God intended. And therefore that led to the fifth privilege because they knew the will of God. They could, the fifth privilege, they could in fact have the privilege of discernment. They could determine what was essential and what was not essential. You see that? And they approved the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. Again, it's boasting, being able to tell what was right and what was wrong, far better than any other nation could. And so they prided themselves in that sixth one, being instructed out of the law. They would have said, it's from God's law, and that, that's where we get our instruction. All of that was true, and yet the way they carried themselves wasn't true. All of their wonderful privileges, all of it was right doctrinally. All of it was biblically correct. They were, in fact, a privileged people beyond all people. But because of spiritual pride, all of that right doctrine had no effect upon them. No effect at all. And I think, as I was studying that, I'm thinking, now here's a principle for us. Just a quick lesson for us as we get started in our understanding of this full text. All the right doctrine does no good if it is not put into practice through a humble, submissive heart. 
You ought to write that down somewhere. Write it in your margins. Write it somewhere on your Bible. Put it in your hand. I don't care where you put it, but put it somewhere where you can see it. All of the right doctrine does you no good if it is not implemented with a submissive, humble heart before God. We can go around and say, oh, I'm a Christian. I have the Bible. I know God. I know His will. I can approve of the things that are essential. I have discernment. I'm instructed out of His law. How good I am. Does you no good if you're not putting it in practice. Remember years ago in the 1980s, some of you kids are wondering when that was. You read about it in the history books. There used to be a songwriter that wrote a song Christian song and one of the lyrics was I hear you're getting into the word but is the word getting into you? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. I hear you guys are getting into the word. You claim all this great stuff but it's not doing anything for you. We can see that in the church today. The same double-edged sword that cuts to the heart of the Jews is the same sword that ought to cut down to our heart. It's so easy for us in the church today to believe that we are okay with God simply because we have the name Christian attached to us. Or because in our age of biblical ignorance we can say that we have such a grasp on the Scripture. Spiritual pride kills We know that God has revealed His will in His Word. In fact, some people are so good with the Scriptures that, in fact, they can turn to a Bible verse for everything you ever talk about. It's a great practice to have. What a a wonderful ability that is. The temptation, though, is if it's not handled rightly, the heart will take it and deceitfully and wickedly lull you into believing that just because you have that ability, you're secure before God. You want to know something? The demons know the Bible better than you do, and they tremble. Isaiah 66, 2 says, To this one I will look, to the one who trembles, who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. You know what the difference is between the demons and us? They know the word of God and they tremble, but there's no humble, contrite spirit within them. The ones the Lord looks to is the ones who are humble and contrite and who tremble at the word. Paul says, if right practice is not the outflow of right doctrine, then we are deceived and in danger of the fires of hell. That's really what he's implying here in verses 21 to 23. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? Oh, you go around saying, oh, here's what the Bible says, but does it affect your life? You teach, you proclaim, you keruso, that's what you preach, that's the word. You, you herald out the word of God that one shouldn't do certain things, you shouldn't take, but do you steal? That hits close to home. We we should preach that text always right in around April 15th time frame. 
You say don't steal. Do you fudge on your taxes? You say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Well, no, I've never done that by way of activity. Well, do you worship other things more than you worship God? Is he the highest devotion of your life? Oh, you may not have physical adultery, but where's your spiritual adultery? Where is that on the scale? You who say hate idols, do you rob temples? You go, what does that mean? Well, that's the whole idea that Paul was speaking to the Corinthians about where there was idol temples and, and, and you had the freedom. You could go and you could, you could get the meat from the idol temple and you, you'd use yourself there and you'd say, oh, listen, it has no effect upon me. And so your freedoms are being abused. You abuse your freedoms because after all, you're a Christian. I'm before God. It's okay. Instead of thinking of others, you abuse others. So Paul says you go and, and you spend yourself on those things. Do you boast in the law? Through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? You see, the double-edged sword that was plunged in at first is now being drawn back out, if you will, and it's cutting in the opposite direction. Because many of the Jewish leaders of that day were guilty of those things. So Paul ends with that scathing indictment. In verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it's written. You see, we, we hear, we hear, profess Christ. We hear, say, we're Christians. We hear, go around to our workplaces and to our schools and to the grocery store and other places, and we say we're Christian. We say we love Christ. We say we have a love for each other. We say that God is our priority, and yet in reality and in practice, far too often, if we're honest with ourselves, we're practical atheists. We live in such a way as if God doesn't exist at all because we're spending our time on A, B, C, or D, which have nothing to do with God. And we claim that we love God, and we claim that our priorities are in the right place, and we claim that that worshiping God and worshiping with His people and being part of this grand thing called the church is so important, and yet everything else seems to squeeze it out. Those who don't know God say, well, if that's the God of the Christian, why should I serve that? name of God is blasphemed because of us. What's the world seeing in us as we live and claim to know God? That's what Paul's saying. You're such a privileged people. And yet the Gentiles look at you and go, why would I want to serve that God? It's a sad reality. Not only did the Jews have great privilege, but also, in their presumption, they actually brought disgrace upon the God they claimed. Their very actions spoke against the very truth they had said they believed. And God was dishonored. The sad part about that is we're not immune. We're not immune to any of that. 
we've all heard of had to deal with consequences of the fallout from the sinful actions of those who claim to be believers but in reality are not believers at all. Listen, God's never impressed with claims. Claims are easy. He's never impressed by claims of right doctrine if it does not produce a changed life. He's never impressed by that. And so Paul's first caution is concerning the false security that is found in holding on to spiritual privilege as a means for your salvation before God. Just simply because you come to church or simply because you know the Bible or you own a Bible or you read the Bible, simply because of that, you, you, you consider yourself okay with God. There's a danger in that. Secondly, and this is just the other side of the same coin of spiritual pride, and that is the caution of not of spiritual privilege, but rather the caution of false security because of being externally allied with God's people. Being externally allied with God's people. Notice what he says in verse 25 through 27. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, although you have the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? This is the hypothetical reality that Paul is developing to show the, the, the utter foolishness of thinking that you have a security before God simply because you are externally allied with God's people through specific things. For the Jews, it was the rite of circumcision. The rite of circumcision was enough in the mind of a Jew to secure you in the kingdom of God forever. History tells us that the rabbis even wrote on this in their commentaries, and they said this, no, un, no circumcised man will see hell. No circumcised man will see hell. And what they meant by that was anybody who, is, who has been physically circumcised, they will be, in fact, secure before God. In the Old Testament, the rite of circumcision was to be a beautiful, symbolic act. We know that. It was an external ritual that symbolized what was or was to be an internal reality. We see it first in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. Here's what God says to Abraham. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. So that was the command. The skin was to be removed during a surgical procedure, and that removal was a symbolic reality. It was, it was an actually external happening, physical reality, and yet it was a symbolic reality that took away symbolically the sinfulness of man that was passed down from generation to generation, from 
one seed to the other. And so every time the male ever went to go take care of his bodily business, he would notice the reality of that and see something had to be taken away because of sin. And so it was a picture of what needed to be cleansed at the very core of man's uncleanness. And what needed to be cleansed at the very core of man's uncleanness was his heart, the internal reality. So it was an external practice, symbolic of what ought and needed to take place internally. So it was a visible sign before God of being a person of God and of the removal of sin that has to take place in the heart. So every male child that was born on the eighth day, they were circumcised and that surgery and his life became a perpetual symbol of what God must do in the heart. It was the same for a proselyte Jew, regardless of age. When they became a Jew, they had to go through that ritual. So the rite of circumcision was a beautiful thing. And yet Paul says that external circumcision will not justify you before God. In other words, externals do not save. Notice, for indeed... Circumcision is of value if you practice the law. He's building a hypothetical. The reality is if you want to live according to the law and try to be justified by the law, then circumcision has that external value. It has a value for that over and above anything that you might think. It is something that you must do because in order to be justified by law, you have to be what? Perfect. Perfect. It's an external thing. But Paul is saying, listen, externals do not save. Because if you are a transgressor of the law, you see in verse 25, then your external action, your external reality has become as if it never took place. It has become uncircumcision. If you want to live by the law and circumcision is of value if you're going to live that way and be according to the law in order to be justified, but if you transgress the law at any one point, your external ritual, whatever that is, and in this case circumcision that you hold so high in value, that has become null and void. That's what he's saying. In other words, external circumcision has great value spiritually but only if you live perfectly under the law. No one does and no one can. And that's the implication. Its meaning is totally disregarded if it's only an outward ritual. It's meaningless. Because you need to be perfect. Physical circumcision was an external symbol of God's covenant and commitment to His chosen people. It was a symbol of His promise for blessing and His protection. But Paul warns in verse 25, listen, if you are a transgressor, then it's meaningless. 
The symbology of it is worthless. The meaning of it is worthless. It it, it means nothing. If you were a Jew and you're continually disobedient to the law, you simply show yourselves to have no more saving relationship with God than a pagan Gentile who does not have the sign of the covenant. It says in verse 26, If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, if the guy who doesn't have the physical external ritual take place in his life and he's not holding on to that, but he's he's one who follows the law, isn't he going to be regarded as someone who's had the externals even though he hasn't had the externals? Sure. I was thinking about this in our day and age. We're, we're similar, really. Sometimes we think of this with baptism, don't we? You think about it that way. Just because someone says they're committed, they've been baptized, they show themselves to be not committed if they go on continually living in disobedience to the things of God, don't they? Right? You can stand up before people and you can profess to know God. You can profess to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can convince people enough through your language that you have this relationship and you go through the external ritual of baptism and baptism does absolutely nothing for a person. It's a symbolic ritual of an external thing that supposedly is taking place internally and yet if your life isn't obedient to the things of God, guess what that says? Your baptism is meaningless. Your external was worthless. Does baptism save anybody? No. So someone could go to heaven who hasn't been baptized. Yes. God requires it. Why? Because it's a profession of faith. It's the external expression of your profession of faith. And what you're saying to people is hold me accountable to that profession of faith. And if you live disobediently after that, you go on living like a pagan after that, we question whether you're genuineness in faith. And if it comes to the place where you continue that way and you just turn, return to your pagan lifestyle, guess what? Your baptism is nullified. It's nothing. It's meaningless. Your externals are zero. And yet, the person who's never been baptized and who yet lives according to the things of God, who is humble and contrite in spirit and, and who trembles at the word of God and follows the word of God, even though they haven't been baptized, maybe because they didn't understand, maybe because they didn't know, maybe because they, they just haven't been exhorted to do that, and they go on living that way, their unbaptism is regarded as if they were. The symbol alone doesn't justify anybody. There has to be actions that are consistent with the profession. That's what Paul is saying to the Jews. And so he says in verse 26 and 27, If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Will not he who is physically uncircumcised? If he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though you have the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? See, Paul's not trying to say that an uncircumcised Gentile could actually go on perfectly living according to the law and thereby in his 
perfect living of the law and be justified? No. He's being hypothetical. No one's justified by keeping the law. Paul is just stressing a point here. He's saying that if they do keep the law, hypothetically, then that keeping of the law would be seen as one who was one of God's children. In other words, it is obedience that proves what's in the heart. It's obedience that proves what's in the heart, not the external. More than that, those who have a false sense of security because of the externals, because they believe that somehow they're privileged by their own name or privileged because they're right with God by some external ritual. Paul says, furthermore, they're going to be judged by those who, although not being spiritually privileged and yet living obediently from the heart, they are true God's children. They will judge. An interesting conundrum, isn't it, in the divine courtroom of God? The non-Jew will be called as a character witness concerning their obedience in spite of no spiritual privilege against the hypocritical spiritual pride of those with privilege who do not live according to it. Let's just further apply that truth to ourselves because we can replace the word circumcision with a whole host of things. I've mentioned baptism, but we can replace it with church membership. We could replace it with prayer. We can replace it with affiliation to some kind of denomination. We can replace it with getting emotional during some kind of message that you heard. Whatever it is that people hold to for their justification, just put it there. Put it in there. Change the word circumcision. Put in that little phrase. It's the same thing. Whatever right people are clinging to as proof. You see, I'm saved. I've been in the church for umpteen years. Paul is saying none of that matters if your life has not been changed. None of that matters. We in Christianity often ask the question, are you a believer? We ask that question. The answers sometimes come back like this. Sure I am. I've been a member of the church for so many years. Sure I am. I was baptized on this day. Yeah, I'm a believer. I know I am. I prayed a prayer when I was five years old. Those are all great things. But there are any number of outward rites and rituals that we can hold to. True assurance can only be true in a right heart. You say, well, how do I know a right heart? Here it is, verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. 
He is not a Jew who is one, we'll just put my word, externally. Neither is circumcision that which is external in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one internally or inwardly. And circumcision or baptism or church membership or or praying a prayer or whatever is that which is from the heart, the real one, by the Spirit, not by the outward expression, not by the letter, not by following a ritual. Your praise isn't going to be from men going, oh, I'm so glad you're a Christian. No, it's from God. Because your heart is right before Him. You see, it's easy, isn't it? It's easy for us to be self-deceived because of familiarity with right doctrine. It's easy for us to, to get up every week, every Sunday, and come to a place and sit in the same seat and with the same people and hear the Word of God over and over and over again and think that simply because I come and I hear the Word of God, therefore I must be okay with God. Spiritual pride is so deadly. It's easy to think that we're okay just because we have the right religious affiliations. Reality is, God is not fooled at all. God knows the truth of the heart. He always sees the hypocrisy. Turn for a moment as we wind our time down here back to Ezekiel. Go back to Ezekiel. Because God through Ezekiel describes the falseness of the religious of his day. Ezekiel 33 verse 30 through 32. But as for you, son of man, God talking to Ezekiel, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of their houses speak to one another, each to his brother, and they say this, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, And they sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth. And their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. It's great that the people come to hear the word of God. They were coming to Ezekiel. They were coming as a congregation. They were sitting there before Ezekiel as Ezekiel was proclaiming the truth of God's word. And God says, here's what I say to those people. There are religious people, there are pious people, but their hearts are not there. They sit 
in front of you to hear your words, but they don't do them. Why? Because they're filled with lustful desires, dire desires that are expressed by their own mouths, not by my mouth, but by their own. Their heart is after their own gain. They say they love me, but they don't love me at all. Their priorities are all for them and none for me. What's God saying? I think He's saying this. The people come. They sit under the hearing of the truth of God and they look to the outsiders as if they're the real thing. Their hearts are far from God. They have greater desires for padding their bank accounts and fulfilling their own lives and doing their own desires and making money for themselves. And according to God's word in verse 32, nothing happens inside Why? Because they don't heed the words of God. To them, the words of God are like their favorite music. It's a beautiful voice. They come, they hear. It's as if it's a nice ballad. They hear it and they're warmed. They hear the words, but they don't do it. God is never fooled by our outward acts, is he? Listen, if our confidence before God lies in the fact that we are here and part of a religious experience, but in reality we never put what we hear into practice, then the sad reality is we are deceived and in danger of hearing those words of Christ in Matthew chapter 7, Depart from me, I never knew. A Jew isn't a Jew outwardly. There's one inwardly. It's an issue of the heart, isn't it? An issue of the heart. So each one of us has to ponder the question. As we think about the Lord's table this morning, where do I put my confidence? Where do I put my confidence? Is it in outward acts of Christianisms isn't an outward acts of church association or is it in the righteousness that comes in Christ alone? True salvation is a matter of the heart. And know this, when the heart is new, it produces fruit of the Spirit. It produces fruit of the Spirit. There are many who can quote all kinds of Bible verses, many who have been in the church for most of their lives, some all their lives. They have a good knowledge of God's Word. I was one of those kids. But do we have Christ in our heart? That's the issue. See, if that's us, and if you're sitting there and you're saying, that's me, that's me, I just, that's me. You know what? Christ can, Christ wants to change your heart. Christ wants to change you, but you have to let go of your own spiritual pride, humble yourself before him. You have to do what Paul is going to say in Romans 10. 
confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You say, why does that work? Because, verse 10 says, it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for communion. Lord, thank you again for this very, very convicting passage of Scripture upon all of us, I am sure, as it has been a severe challenge upon my own heart this week. Lord, thank you for the conviction of your word, for the challenge that it is to each one of us, and for the way in which we see ourselves Each one of us knows our faults. We know where we fall short. We know, truth be known, all of us here, I'm sure, at time has said, Man, Lord, am I even saved? But simply to ask that question shows a softness. Softness to know you, to desire to know you, and you are faithful. You are faithful to carry us through. We know who we would be had you not saved us. We know how far we would go. But we would want nothing at all to do with you. Surely, potentially, even in this room, there are those who have thought all along that because they've been part of this congregation for 20, 30 years or because they have claimed you and yet their life shows no evidence They've convinced themselves that they're secure with you when in fact they're not. Lord, convict the hearts where they need to be convicted. Challenge us so that we would not walk out of this building once again lost, deceived, thinking that we're okay when we're not. Produce in us the fruit of the Spirit when we submit our will, when we are in fact as Isaiah 66, 2 says, contrite of spirit, humble, trembling at your word. Help us walk according to that, that we might further know you and the joy and blessing of our communion with you, never resting on the externals, but only on what is truly internal that produces the right external. Thank you for loving us in these ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.